Chapter 1 of Frostiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Frost. This is the state of man. Today he puts forth the tender leaves of hope, tomorrow blossoms, and bears his blushing honours thick upon him. The third day comes a frost, a killing frost, and when he thinks, good easy man, full surely, his greatness is a ripening, nips his root, and then he falls. Shakespeare. Of all known substances, the atmosphere either absorbs or throws out heat with the most remarkable facility, and in one or other of these states it always is with respect to the surface of the earth, and such bodies as are placed on or near it. For these, properly speaking, have no temperature of their own, but are entirely regulated by that of the atmosphere. When the air has been for some time absorbing the heat from terrestrial bodies, a frost must be the undoubted consequence for the same reason that water freezes in a vessel which is placed in a freezing mixture, and were this absorption to continue for a length of time, the whole earth would be converted into a frozen mass. There are, however, certain powers in nature by which this effect is always prevented, and the most violent frost we can imagine must always, as it were, defeat its own purposes and end in a thaw. Freezing. This is the fixing a fluid body into a firm or solid mass by the action of cold. A computation of the force of freezing water has been made by the Florentine Academicians from the bursting of a very strong brass globe or shell by freezing water in it, when, from the known thickness and tenacity of the metal, it was found that the expansive power of a spherule of water only one inch in diameter was sufficient to overcome a resistance of more than 27,000 pounds, or 13 tons and a half. Cold also usually tends to make bodies electric, which are not so naturally and to increase the electric properties of such as are so. And it is further found that all substances do not transmit cold equally well, but that the best conductors of electricity, that is, metals, are likewise the best conductors of cold. It may further be added that when cold has been carried to such an extremity as to render any body inelectric, it then ceases to conduct the cold as well as before. This is exemplified in the practice of the Laplanders and Siberians, where, to exclude the extreme cold of the winters from their habitations the more effectually, and yet to admit a little light, they cut pieces of ice, which in the winter time must always be electric in those countries, and put them into their windows, which they find to be much more effectual in keeping out the cold than any other substance. Excessive degrees of cold occur naturally in many parts of the globe in the winter season, although the thermometer in this country hardly ever descends so low as zero, yet in the winter of 1780, Mr. Wilson of Glasgow observed that a thermometer laid on the snow sunk to 25 degrees below zero, and Mr. Derham, in the year 1708, observed in England that the mercury stood within one-tenth of an inch of its station when plunged into a mixture of snow and salt. At Petersburg, in 1732, the thermometer stood at 28 degrees below zero, and when the French academicians wintered near the polar circle, the thermometer sunk to 33 degrees below zero, and in the Asiatic and American continents, still greater degrees of cold are often observed. Wonderful expansion of water in the act of freezing. Water and some other fluids suddenly dilate and expand in the act of freezing, so as to occupy a greater space in the form of ice than before, in consequence of which it is that the ice is specifically lighter than the same fluid and floats in it and the degree of expansion of water in the state of ice is by some authors computed at about one-tenth of its volume. Oil, however, is an exception to this property, and quicksilver too, which shrinks and contracts still more after freezing. Mr. Boyle relates several experiments of vessels made of metal, very thick and strong, 
in which, when filled with water, close-stopped and exposed to the cold, the water being expanded and freezing and not finding either room or vent, bursts the vessels. A strong barrel of a gun, with water in it close-stopped and frozen, was rent the whole length. Huygens, to try the force with which it expands, filled a cannon with it, whose sides were an inch thick, and then closed up the mouth and vent so that none could escape, the hole being exposed to a strong freezing air. The water froze in about twelve hours and burst the piece in two places. Mathematicians have computed the force of the ice upon this occasion, and they say that such a force would raise a weight of 27,720 pounds. Major Edward Williams of the Royal Artillery made many experiments on the force of it at Quebec in 1784 and 1785. He filled all sizes of iron bombshells with water, then plugged the fuse hole close up and exposed them to the strong freezing air of the winter in that climate, sometimes driving in the iron plugs as hard as possible with the sledgehammer, and yet they were always thrown out by the sudden expansion of the water in the act of freezing, like a ball shot by gunpowder, sometimes to the distance of between 400 and 500 feet, though they weighed nearly three pounds, and when the plugs were screwed in or furnished with hooks or barbs to lay hold of the inside of the shell so that they would not possibly be forced out in this case, the shell was always split in two, though the thickness of the metal of the shell was about an inch and three quarters. It is further remarkable that through the circular crack round about these shells where they burst, there stood out a thin film or sheet of ice like a fin, and in the cases where the plugs were projected by freezing water, there suddenly issued from the fuse hole a bolt of ice of the same diameter, and stood over it to the height of sometimes eight inches and a half. And hence we need not be surprised at the effects of ice in destroying the substance of vegetables and trees, and even splitting rocks when the frost is carried to excess. Thames Frozen, 1715-16 to The beauties and usefulness of the Thames have been almost an endless theme. We shall here describe how it has contributed at various eras to the amusement of thousands, when in a frozen state. In the frost of 1715-16, to this advertisement appeared. This is to give notice to gentlemen and others that pass upon the Thames during this frost, that over against Whitehall stairs they may have their names printed, fit to paste in any book, to hand down the memory of the season to future ages. You that walk there and do design to tell your children's children what this year befell, go print your names and take a dram within, for such a year as this has seldom been. Dorks's newsletter of the 14th of January says, The Thames seems now a solid rock of ice, and booths for the sale of brandy, wine, ale, and other exhilarating liquors have been for some time fixed thereon, but now it is in a manner like a town. Thousands of people cross it, and with wonder view the mountainous heaps of water that now lie congealed into ice. On Thursday a great cook's shop was erected, and gentlemen went as frequently to dine there as at any ordinary. Over against Westminster, Whitehall and Whitefriars, printing presses are kept upon the ice where many persons have their names printed, to transmit the wonders of the season to posterity. Coaches, wagons, carts, etc. were driven on it, and an enthusiastic preacher held forth to a motley congregation on the mighty waters, with a zeal fiery enough to have thawed himself through the ice had it been susceptible of religious warmth. This, with other pastimes and diversions, attracted the attention of many of the nobility, and even brought the Prince of Wales to visit Frost Fair. On that day there was an uncommonly high spring-tide which overflowed the cellars on the banks of the river, and raised the ice full fourteen feet without interrupting the people from their pursuits. The Protestant packet of this period observes that the theatres were almost deserted. 
The newsletter of February 13th announces the dissolution of the ice, and with it the baseless fabric on which Momus had held his temporary reign. The above paper then proclaims the good fare, and various articles to be seen and purchased. Thou beauteous river Thames, whose standing tide equals the glory of thy flowing pride, the city, nay, the world's transferred to thee, fixed as the land and richer than the sea. The various metals nature can produce, or art improve for ornament or use. From the earth's deepest bowels brought are made to shine in thee and carry on thy trade. Here Guillaume famed for making silver pass through various forms and sparks as famed for brass. There's tea tween God and gold who ne'er stood neuter, and trusty Nicholson who lives by pewter. Wrote o'er their doors, having affixed their names, we under writ, removed are to the Thames. There, miles together for the common good, the slippery substance offers dainty food. Here healing port wine, and there rainish flows, here bohea tea, and there tobacco grows. In one place you may meet good Cheshire cheese, another proffers whitest Brentford peas. Here is King George's picture, there Queen Anne's, now nut-brown ale in cups and then in cans. One sells an Oxford dram as good as can be, another offers General Pepper's brandy. See, there's the mall, and in that little hut, the best Geneva's sold and love to boot. See there, a sleek Venetian envoy walks, see here, an alderman more proudly stalks. Behold the French ambassador, that's he, and this the honest sire and Captain Lee. Here is St. James's Street, yonder the Strand, in this place Bowyer plies, that's Lintot's stand. Thames Frozen, 1739-40 to 40. The winter of 1739-40 to 40 became memorable from its uncommon severity, and the occurrence of one of the most intense frosts that had ever been known in this country, and which from its piercing cold and long continuance has been recorded in our annals by the appellation of the Great Frost. It commenced on Christmas Day and lasted till the 17th of the following February when it began to break up, but was not wholly dissipated till near the end of the month. The distress which it occasioned among the poor and labouring classes of London was extreme. Coals could hardly be obtained for money, and water was equally scarce. The watermen and fishermen, with a peterboat in mourning, and the carpenters, bricklayers, etc., with their tools and utensils in mourning, walked through the streets in large bodies, imploring relief for their own and family's necessities, and, to the honour of the British character, this was liberally bestowed. Subscriptions were also made in the different parishes, and great benefactions bestowed by the opulent, through which the calamities of the season were much mitigated. A few days after the frost had set in, great damage was done among the shipping in the River Thames by a high wind, which broke many vessels from their moorings and drove them foul of each other, while the large flakes of ice there floated on the stream, overwhelmed various boats and lighters, and sunk several corn and coal vessels. By these accidents many lives were lost, and many others were also destroyed in the intenseness of the cold, both on land and water. Above Bridge, the Thames was completely frozen over, and tents and numerous booths were erected on it for selling liquors, etc., to the multitudes that daily flocked thither for curiosity or diversion. The scene here displayed was very irregular, and had more the appearance of a fair on land than of a frail exhibition, the only basis of which was congealed water. Various shops were opened for the sale of toys, cutlery, and other light articles. Even a printing press was established, and all the common sports of the populace in a wintry season were carried on with augmented spirit, in despite or forgetfulness of the distress which reigned on shore. Many of the houses which at that time stood upon London Bridge, as well as the bridge itself, 
received considerable damage when the thaw commenced by the driving of the ice. The following is an exact copy of one of the papers printed upon the Thames during the memorable frost of 1740. The gentleman, whose name appears in it, William Noble, M.A., had been one of a great number without doubt, who had their names printed upon the ice as a rarity, not likely again to happen. The original is in the possession of a gentleman of Whitehaven, but it is not known who the Mr. Noble was, whose name and designation it bears. The noble art and mystery of printing was first invented by J. Faust, 1441, and publicly practiced by John Gutenberg, a soldier at Mentz, in High Germany, anno 1450. King Henry VI, anno 1457, sent two private messengers with 1,500 marks to procure one of the workmen. These prevailed on Frederick Corsellus to leave the printing house in disguise, who immediately came over with them, and first instructed the English in this most famous art at Oxford in the year 1459. William Noble, M.A. Amidst the arts which on the Thames appear, to tell the wonders of this icy year, printing claims prior place, which at one view erects a monument of that and you. Printed upon the River Thames, January 29th in the 13th year of the reign of King George II, Anno Domini 1740. Frost of 1767-68 to 68. The beginnings of these years were both distinguished by a very severe frost, through which the price of provisions was greatly enhanced. The navigation of the River Thames was stopped, and the river below bridge had all the appearance of a general wreck. Ships, boats, and small craft lying in confusion amidst the ice, while others were either driven on shore or sunk by the driving shoals. Many persons perished by the severity of the weather, both on the water and on shore. During the latter frost, the price of butcher's meat grew so exorbitant that the Honourable Thomas Harley, Lord Mayor, proposed that bounties should be given for bringing fish to Billingsgate Market, and this plan having been carried into effect, the distresses of the poor were greatly alleviated by the cheap rates at which the markets were supplied. Thames Frozen, 1788-89 In 1788, a frost began on the 25th of November and lasted seven weeks. On the 5th of January, the thermometer stood at 11 degrees below the freezing point in the very midst of the city. The Thames was completely frozen over below London Bridge, and from the variety of booths, etc., erected on the ice, it assumed all the appearance of a fair. Even puppet shows and wild beasts were exhibited. The following diary of remarkable events during this severe frost is taken from the Gentleman's Magazine for 1789. Saturday, January 10th, 1789. Thirteen men brought a wagon with a ton of coals from Lowborough in Leicestershire to Carlton House as a present to His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales. As soon as they were emptied into the cellar, Mr. Welchie, clerk of the cellars, gave them four guineas, and as soon as the prince was informed of it, his highness gave them twenty guineas and ordered them a pot of beer each man. They performed their journey, which is a hundred and eleven miles, in eleven days, and drew it all the way without any relief. Monday 12th. A young bear was baited on the ice, opposite to Redriff, which drew multitudes together, and fortunately no accident happened to interrupt their sport. Tuesday 13th. The Prince of Wales transmitted a thousand pounds to the Chamberlain for the benefit of the poor during the severe frost. Saturday 17th. The captain of a vessel lying off Rotherhithe, the better to secure the ship's cables, made an agreement with a publican for fastening a cable to his premises. In consequence, a small anchor was carried on shore and deposited in the cellar, while another cable was fastened round a beam in another part of the house. 
In the night, the ship veered about, and the cables holding fast carried away the beam and leveled the house with the ground, by which accident five persons asleep in their beds were killed. In the commonplace notes for February 1789, it is remarked, with the new year, new entertainments commenced, or more properly speaking, old sports were revived in the neighbourhood of London. The River Thames, which at this season usually exhibits a dreary scene of languor and indolence, was this year the stage on which there were all kinds of diversions. Bear-baiting, festivals, pigs and sheep roasted, booths, turnabouts, and all the various amusements of Bartholomew Fair multiplied and improved. From Putney Bridge in Middlesex down to Redriff was one continued scene of merriment and jollity. Not a gloomy face to be seen, nor a countenance expressive of want, but all cheerfulness originating apparently from busyness and bustle. From this description, the reader is not, however, to conclude that it all was as it seemed. The miserable inhabitants that dwelt in houses on both sides of the river during these thoughtless exhibitions were many of them experiencing the extreme of misery. Destitute of employment, though industrious, they were with families of helpless children, for want of employment, pining for want of bread, and though in no country in the world the rich are more extensively benevolent than in England, yet their benefactions could bear no proportion to the wants of the numerous poor, who could not all partake of the common bounty. It may, however, be truly said that in no great city or country on the continent of Europe the poor suffered less from the rigour of the season than the inhabitants of Great Britain and London. Yet even in London the distresses of the poor were very great, and though liberal subscriptions were raised for their relief, many perished through want and cold. On this occasion the City of London subscribed £1,500 towards supporting the persons who were not in the habit of receiving alms. Thames Frozen, 1814 The history of this great frost has already been detailed in our introduction. We shall now confine ourselves to the events which took place on the marble bosom of the now-flowing Thames, from the 30th of January to the 7th of February inclusive. Sunday, January 30th. Immense masses of ice that had floated from the upper parts of the river, in consequence of the thaw on the two preceding days, now blocked up the Thames between Blackfriars and London Bridge, and afforded every probability of its being frozen over in a day or two. Some venturous persons even now walked on different parts of the ice. Monday, January 31st. This expectation was realised. During the whole of the afternoon, hundreds of people were assembled on Blackfriars and London bridges to see several adventurous men cross and recross the Thames on the ice. At one time, 70 persons were counted walking from Queen Hythe to the opposite shore. The frost on Sunday night so united the vast mass as to render it immovable by the tide. Tuesday, February 1st. The floating masses of ice with which we have already stated the Thames to be covered, having been stopped by London Bridge, now assumed the shape of a solid surface over that part of the river which extends from Blackfriars Bridge to some distance below Three Crane Stairs, at the bottom of Queen Street, Cheapside. The watermen, taking advantage of this circumstance, placed notices at the end of all the streets leading to the city side of the river, announcing a safe footway over the river, which, as might be expected, attracted immense crowds to witness so novel a scene. Many were induced to venture on the ice, and the example thus afforded soon led thousands to perambulate the rugged plain, where a variety of amusements were prepared for their entertainment. Among the more curious of these was the ceremony of roasting a small sheep, which was toasted, or rather burnt, over a coal fire, placed in a large iron pan. For a view of this extraordinary spectacle, sixpence was demanded, and willingly paid. The delicate meat, when done, was sold at one shilling a slice, and termed Lapland mutton. 
Of booths there were a great number which were ornamented with streamers, flags, and signs, and in which there was a plentiful store of those favourite luxuries, gin, beer, and gingerbread. Opposite Three Crane Stairs there was a complete and well-frequented thoroughfare to Bankside, which was strewed with ashes and apparently afforded a very safe, although a very rough, path. Near Blackfriars Bridge, however, the path did not appear to be equally safe, for one young man, a plumber named Davis, having imprudently ventured to cross with some lead in his hands, he sank between two masses of ice to rise no more. Two young women nearly shared a similar fate, but were happily rescued from their perilous situation by the prompt efforts of two watermen. Many a fair nymph indeed was embraced in the icy arms of old Father Thames. Three prim young Quakeresses had a sort of semi-bathing near London Bridge, and when landed on terra firma, made the best of their way through the borough, and amidst the shouts of an admiring populace to their residence at Newington. In consequence of the impediments to the current of the river at London Bridge, the tide did not ebb for some days more than one half the usual mark. Wednesday, February 2nd. The same sports were repeated, and the Thames presented a complete frost fair. The Grand Mall or Walk was from Blackfriars Bridge to London Bridge. This was named the City Road, and lined on each side with tradesmen of all descriptions. Eight or ten printing presses were erected, and numerous pieces commemorative of the Great Frost were actually printed on the ice. Some of these frosty typographers displayed considerable taste in their specimens. At one of the presses, an orange-coloured standard was hoisted, with the watchword Orange Boven in large characters, and the following papers were issued from it. Frost Fair. Amidst the arts which on the Thames appear, to tell the wonders of this icy year, printing claims prior place, which at one view, erects a monument of that and you. Another. You that walk here and do design to tell your children's children what this year befell, come by this print and it will then be seen that such a year as this has seldom been. Another of these stainers of paper addressed the spectators in the following terms. Friends, now is your time to support the freedom of the press. Can the press have greater liberty? Here you find it working in the middle of the Thames, and if you encourage us by buying our impressions, we will keep it going in the true spirit of liberty during the frost. One of the articles printed and sold contained the following lines. Behold, the river Thames is frozen o'er, which lately ships of mighty burden bore. Now different arts and pastimes here you see, but printing claims the superiority. Besides the above, the Lord's Prayer and several other pieces were issued from these icy printing offices, and which were bought with the greatest avidity. Thursday, February 3rd. The adventurers were still more numerous. Swings, bookstalls, dancing in a barge, suttling booths, playing at skittles, and almost every appendage of a fair on land was now transferred to the Thames. Thousands of people flocked to behold this singular spectacle, and to partake of the various sports and pastimes. The ice now became like a solid rock of adamant, and presented a truly picturesque appearance. The view of St. Paul's and of the city with the white foreground had a very singular effect. In many parts, mountains of ice were upheaved, and these fragments bore a strong resemblance to the rude interior of a stone quarry. Friday, February 4th. Every day brought a fresh accession of peddlers to sell their wares, and the greatest rubbish of all sorts was raked up and sold at double and treble the original cost. Books and toys labelled Bought on the Thames were seen in profusion. The watermen profited exceedingly, for each person paid a toll of two pence or three pence before he was admitted to Frostfair. Some docour also was expected on your return. These men are said to have taken six pounds each in the course of a day. 
This afternoon, about five o'clock, three persons, an old man and two lads, having ventured on a piece of ice above London Bridge, it suddenly detached itself from the main body and was carried by the tide through one of the arches. The persons on the ice who laid themselves down for safety were observed by the boatmen at Billingsgate, who, with laudable activity, put off to their assistance and rescued them from their impending danger. One of them was able to walk, but the other two were carried in a state of insensibility to a public house, where they received every attention their situation required. Many persons were seen on the ice till late at night, and the effect by moonlight was singularly picturesque and beautiful. With a single stretch of imagination, we might have transported ourselves to the frozen climes of the north, to Lapland, Sweden, or Holland. Saturday, February 5th. The morning of this day augured rather unfavourably for the continuance of frost fair. The wind had shifted to the south, and a light fall of snow took place. The visitors of the Thames, however, were not to be deterred by trifles. Thousands again ventured, and there was still much life and bustle on the frozen element. The footpath in the centre of the river was hard and secure, and among the pedestrians we observed four donkeys, which trotted a nimble pace and produced considerable merriment. At every glance the spectator met with some pleasing novelty. Gaming, in all its branches, threw out different allurements, while honesty was out of the question. Many of the itinerant admirers of the profits gained by E.O. tables, Rouge et Noir, Teetotum, Wheel of Fortune, The Garter, etc., were industrious in their avocations, leaving their kind customers without a penny to pay the passage over a plank to the shore. Skittles was played by several parties, and the drinking tents filled by females and their companions, dancing reels to the sound of fiddles, while others sat round large fires, drinking rum, grog, and other spirits. Tea, coffee, and eatables were provided in ample order, while the passengers were invited to eat by way of recording their visit. Several respectable tradesmen also attended with their wares, selling books, toys, and trinkets of every description. Towards the evening, the concourse became thinned, rain fell in some quantity, Maester Ice gave some loud cracks, and floated with the printing presses, booths, etc., to the no small dismay of publicans, typographers, etc. In short, this icy palace of Momus, this frost fairy work, was soon to be dissolved, and was doomed to vanish like the baseless fabric of a vision, but leaving some wrecks behind. A short time previously to this great event, a gentleman standing by one of the printing presses, and supposed to be a limb of the law, handed the following jeu d'esprit to its conductor, requesting that it might be printed on the Thames. The prophecy which it contains has been most remarkably fulfilled. To Madame Tabitha Thor Dear dissolving dame, Father Frost and Sister Snow have bonied my borders, formed an idol of ice upon my bosom, and all the lads of London come to make merry. Now as you love mischief, treat the multitude with a few cracks by a sudden visit, and obtain the prayers of the poor upon both banks. Given at my own press, the 5th of February, 1814. Thomas Thames. It was evident that a thaw was rapidly taking place, yet such was the indiscretion and heedlessness of some persons that one most fatal accident occurred. Two genteel-looking young men fell victims to their temerity in venturing on the ice above Westminster Bridge, notwithstanding the warnings of the watermen. A large mass on which they stood, and which had been loosened by the flood tide, gave way and they floated down the stream. As they passed under Westminster Bridge, they cried out most piteously for help. They had not gone far before they sat down, but both going too near the edge, they overbalanced the mass and were precipitated into the stream, sinking to rise no more.
This morning also, Mr. Lawrence, of the Feathers in High Timber Street, Queenhithe, erected a booth on the Thames opposite Brooks Wharf for the accommodation of the curious. At nine at night he left it to the care of two men, taking away all the liquors except some gin which he gave them for their own use. Sunday, February 6th. At two o'clock this morning, the tide began to flow with great rapidity at London Bridge. The thaw assisted the efforts of the tide, and the booth just mentioned was hurried along with the quickness of lightning towards Blackfriars Bridge. There were nine men in it, and in their alarm they neglected the fire and candles, which communicating with the covering set it in a flame. The men succeeded in getting into a lighter which had broken from its moorings, but it was dashed to pieces against one of the piers of Blackfriars Bridge, on which seven of them got and were taken off safely. The other two got into a barge while passing Puddle Dock. On this day, the Thames, towards high tide, about 3pm, presented a very tolerable idea of the frozen ocean. Grand masses of ice floating along, added to the great height of the water, afforded a striking object for contemplation. Thousands of disappointed persons thronged the banks, and many apprentice boy and servant maid sighed unmutterable things at the sudden and unlooked-for destruction of Frostfair. Monday, February 7th. Large masses of ice are yet floating, and numerous lighters, broken from their moorings, are seen in different parts of the river, many of them complete wrecks. The damage done to the craft and barges is supposed to be very great. From London Bridge to Westminster, £20,000 will scarcely make good the losses that have been sustained. While we are now writing, half past 2pm, a printing press has been again set up on a large ice island between Blackfriars and Westminster Bridges. At this new printing office, the remainder of a large impression of the title page of the present work is now actually being printed, so that the purchasers of Frostiana will have this additional advantage. Freezing rain, or raining ice. This is a very uncommon kind of shower, which fell in the west of England in December 1672. This rain, as soon as it touched anything above ground, as a bow or the like, immediately settled into ice, and, by multiplying and enlarging the icicles, broke all down with its weight. The rain that fell on the snow immediately froze into ice without sinking in the snow at all. It made an incredible destruction of trees beyond anything in all history. Had it concluded with some gust of wind, says a gentleman on the spot, it might have been of terrible consequence. I weighed the sprig of an ash tree of just three quarters of a pound, the ice on which weighed sixteen pounds. Some were frighted with the noise in the air, till they discerned it was the clatter of icy boughs dashed against each other. Dr. Beale observes that there was no considerable frost observed on the ground during the whole, whence he concludes that a frost may be very intense and dangerous on the tops of some hills and plains, while in other places it keeps at two, three, or four feet distance above the ground, rivers, lakes, etc. The frost was followed by a forwardness of flowers and fruits. Influence of Frost on Health the salutary influence of frosty seasons on the health of mankind is not in the least confirmed by the annual bills of mortality, as many old and debilitated persons, whose vital heat is insufficient to excite into action their vessels, already too unsusceptible of irritation, die in consequence of long frosts during severe winters. Birds and other wild animals, as well as tender vegetables, perish benumbed from the same cause. It deserves, however, to be remarked that a sharp dry frost does not affect the human skin with that sensation of chilly and piercing cold, which we experience when the air is loaded with moisture, the temperature of which is near the freezing point. 
This remarkable difference arises from the intense degree of cold produced by the evaporation of fluids, which continually takes place on the surface of living bodies, where it naturally produces a more perceptible effect than the simple contact of dry air would occasion when it is but a few degrees below freezing. To the young and robust, frost is more pleasing than moist air, as, in the former, they are able to keep themselves warm with increased exercise, which, in the latter, only tends to promote and render the evaporation more severely felt on the skin. For the same reason, severe and continued frosts destroy the children of the poor, who want both food, fire, and clothing in this harsh climate. In cold countries, the frost frequently proves fatal to mankind, not only producing mortification, but even death itself. The hands of those unfortunate persons who die in consequence of intense cold are first seized, till they lose the sense of feeling. Next, a drowsiness pervades the whole body, which, if indulged in, is attended with imperceptible dissolution. Frozen Market at St. Petersburg To strangers, unaccustomed to the various changes produced in men and things by the influence of intense frost, nothing appears more wonderful or noteworthy than that part of the city dedicated to the sale of frozen provisions. Your astonished sight is there arrested by a vast open square, containing the bodies of many thousand animals, piled in pyramidical heaps on all sides. Cows, sheep, hogs, fowls, butter, eggs, fish, all stiffened into granite. The fish are attractively beautiful, possessing the vividness of their living colour, with the transparent clearness of wax imitations. The beasts present a far less pleasing spectacle, most of the larger sort being skinned and classed according to their species. Groups of many hundreds are seen piled upon their hind legs against one another, as if each were making an effort to climb over the back of its neighbour. The motionless yet apparent animation of their seemingly struggling attitudes as if suddenly seized and moving and petrified by frost, gives a horrid life to this dead scene. Had an enchanter's wand been instantaneously waved over this sea of animals during their different actions, they could not have been fixed more decidedly. Their hardness, too, is so extreme that the natives chop them up for purchases like wood. The provisions collected here are the product of countries many thousand worsts distant. Siberia, Archangel, and still remoter provinces furnish the merchandise which, during the frost severity, is conveyed hither on sledges. In consequence of the multitudes of these commodities, and the short period allowed to the existence of the market, they are cheaper than at any other period of the year, and are therefore bought in large quantities to be laid up as a winter stock. When deposited in cellars, they keep for a length of time. At certain hours every day, the market, while it lasts, is a fashionable lounge. There you meet all the beauty and gaiety of St. Petersburg, even from the imperial family down to the Russian merchant's wife. Incredible crowds of sledges, carriages, and pedestrians throng the place. The different groups of spectators, purchasers, vendors, and commodities form such an extraordinary spectacle as no other city is known to equal. Chronological Table of Remarkable Frosts Throughout Europe AD 220. A frost in Britain lasted five months. 250. The Thames frozen nine weeks. 291. Rivers in Britain frozen six weeks. 359. Frost in Scotland for 14 weeks. 508. Rivers in Britain frozen two months. 695. Thames frozen six weeks and booths built on it. 759. Frost from October 1st till February 26th, 760. 827. Frost in England for nine weeks. 923. The Thames frozen 13 weeks. 987. 
Frost lasted 120 days, began December 22nd. 998, the Thames frozen five weeks. 1035, severe frost on June 24th, the corn and fruits destroyed. 1063, the Thames frozen 14 weeks. 1076, frost in England from November till April 1077. 1205, frost from January 15th till March 22nd. 1407, frost that lasted 15 weeks. 1434, from November 24th till February 10th, 1435, Thames frozen down to Gravesend. 1683, frost for 13 weeks. 1708 and 09, severe frost for many weeks. 1739 and 40, one for nine weeks began December 24th. 1742, severe frost for many weeks. 1747, severe frost in Russia. 1754, severe one in England. 1767 to 68, severe frost, navigation of the Thames stopped. 1776, the same in England. 1788 to 89, the Thames frozen below bridge and booths erected on it. 1791, frost and snow in different parts of England at midsummer. 1794, hard frost of many weeks. Thermometer at London mostly at 20 below zero of Fahrenheit. 1796, most intense cold on Christmas Day. 1813 to 14, a frost of almost unparalleled severity commenced December 27th and broke up February 5th. End of chapter 1 Recording by Lewis Fletcher